Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. We are back after our week-long hiatus for the U.S. American Thanksgiving holiday. And if you celebrated that holiday, I hope it was delicious for you. Uh, We had a wonderful Friendsgiving here in New York City. Got to go watch the balloons get inflated for the Thanksgiving Day Parade that was on TV on Thursday morning. So if you were watching that live, uh, we got to go see those balloons, just a slight preview for them. It's always kind of funny to see them tied down with nets, just kind of hanging outside the Museum of Natural History. But in any case, we're glad to be back on the air today with an episode featuring Alyssa Stoner Reddy and Janelle Briscoe. Alyssa and Janelle are both directors of one-person shops. So I know there are a lot of you out there who run one-person shops and feel like you have to be all things to all people a lot. So they're going to talk a little bit about some coping strategies and some leadership strategies, amongst many other things. Alyssa Stoner-Reddy is the Director of Student Conduct and Community Standards and Deputy Title IX Coordinator for Students at Dean College in Massachusetts. Dean College is a residential college with 1,100 students that offers both associates and bachelor's degrees. Alyssa also serves as an administrator on call and lives on campus with her partner who also works in student affairs and their one-year-old son and lab mix. Alyssa is a native of Washington, D.C., and in her free time, she likes to spend her time rooting for the mediocre D.C. area sports teams and complaining about the amount of layers it takes to run in a New England winter. Janelle Briscoe is the Director of Community Accountability at Belmont University, located in Nashville, Tennessee. Janelle earned her Bachelor of Arts in Psychology degree from Northern Kentucky University and her Master's degree in College Student Personnel from the University of Louisville, which is located in her hometown. In addition to her work in student conduct at Belmont, she has worked in residence life at Bellarmine University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Alyssa Stoner-Reddy. Alyssa is the Director of Student Conduct and Community Standards at Dean College, which is a small liberal arts college that offers both bachelor's and associate's degrees. Alyssa's with us as a one-person shop, and we're really excited to talk to her today. Welcome, Alyssa. Hello. It's great to be here. I'm excited. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to releasing this episode to the listeners. We get a lot of feedback that a lot of uh, the programs and sessions that we see at conferences and even at our Gearing Academy are often really geared towards multi-person offices or even you know public institutions. And so I'm really excited to feature you on this episode that's really directed more at folks who are running one-person shops. So before we get into all of that, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into student conduct? Yeah, so my journey to this date has me up and down the East Coast of uh, U.S. Um, So I actually kind of started in working in a residential hospital. I'm sorry, you said a hospital? Uh, Yeah, a hospital. Uh, It was working in a child life department. So I essentially, like I said, uh, joked around, got to play uh, with kids as a job. It was fun but challenging because I had anywhere between two and 22-year-olds. So, you know, never a dull day. Excellent. So how did you transition from that hospital into student conduct and student affairs? 
yeah, so I, I learned I really liked working with the high school students, um, many of whom are first generation, um, even graduating high school. Um, and so because they were residential in the in a hospital, they got to kind of have more access to to higher education. Um, so really got involved with them and enjoyed kind of that one on one conversations and discussions and got to see a couple of them go to pursue their degrees at local schools. Um, and so that was just fun. And as I kind of took a little bit more, you know, reflection, I, I really enjoyed that. So that got me kind of into student affairs. And then I think from there, I've always liked to be in the underdog, as many of us do. So Excellent. And where have you been in higher ed? So I uh, I went to UConn's uh, higher education program and worked uh, with Kathy Cox in uh, the student conduct office there in my practicum. Um, and then from there, transitioned to a full-time assistant director in student conduct at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, right near the water. It's a public liberal arts institution down there, about 5,000. All right. And now you've landed at Dean. Now I have landed at Dean in the cold New England uh, uh, area since it's, you know, in the 40s today. So We hope you warm up soon. It's a little too late to be that cold, I think. Yeah, I know. I uh, joke with my supervisor that I blame him for bringing me up uh, to the cold weather. (laughs) Well, we're so glad to have you talk a little bit about Dean, but I also think your experience is really great and that you can talk about working at a large institution like UConn and have that comparative experience. So how has that really affected your career and affected your career choices in learning about what it takes to be in a large shop like UConn versus a small shop like Dean? I mean, I think the first thing that, that has been different, and, and Christopher Newport also had uh, three staff members and an administrative assistant in it, so I've kind of had the large, medium, small uh, experiences. I, I think the differences really come on a day-to-day basis where um, you're either doing those detailed, uh, really specific work and you're the expert in that area versus the anything and everything kind of come at you at once, uh, but more from a breath as opposed to a depth. So I think it really comes down to, you know, what are you interested in professionally? Do you like that expert, the the specificity? Do you like getting to be that person for that particular area? Or do you like the challenge of getting everything and anything, but maybe only having, you know, a few examples of it per year as opposed to it being your daily role? How do you triage and prioritize uh, prioritize which cases you're seeing first versus which cases you think might be able to wait a couple of days? That definitely has taken some time for me to to, to figure out. I think especially um, when I first got to Dean, that was one of the biggest learning curves I had to take uh, after my first year was just looking at how I prioritized things. You know, obviously for me, uh, I, I'm the lead Title IX investigator, and I do most of the compliance side, so statistics, trainings, investigating, uh, policies for Title IX, et cetera. So those typically are our priorities, but the irony is because we can take a little bit more time with those, sometimes those do take the back burner when, you know, I have a, a lawyer that's asking for a 75-page student conduct record request, and it needs to happen now. Um so I think it's looking at who who are the people that, that need you, um, what's most fair to the students that you're working with, and then also looking at it from the college's perspective of, of what's the priority for protecting the place that you work and, and making sure that you're doing everything effectively. 
I think the challenge for perfectionists too is, is you always want to do everything perfectly. Uh, you always want to, you know, make sure that you're being everywhere for everybody. And I think sometimes it's also learning. Sometimes you have to pass off things to other staff members who don't work in conduct because you're the only one um, to make sure it all comes together. It sounds like you have a pretty enormous portfolio. Uh, can you talk a little bit about everything that's inside of it? Yeah, of course. So as the director of student conduct and community standards, uh, the one person shop, I um, am responsible for a handbook, clery numbers. I hear cases um, and I oversee a caseload of about uh, 800 cases a year. Uh, we have four full-time resident directors who help me hear cases. And then, you know, as a one-stop shop, I, I don't have an administrative assistant. So I'm the manager of of our conduct software. Um, I'm the lead and Title IX investigator, and I do that compliance side. And then I manage the Students of Concern team as well. Um, I'm also administrator on call for the college, uh, so I live on and get to do things as night. I get to problem solve at night as well. So do you sleep? Uh, a little. I have a seven-month-old, so who's not quite sleeping through the night either. So I joke it's either students or it's my seven-month-old that are keeping me up. So, you know. My goodness, Alyssa, I think you are a great example for our listeners and our profession about student conduct folks that are really trying to do it all. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as, you know, we've all heard you're doing it really, really well. So it's really exciting to have you talk about this. So when you're looking at, you know, the caseload of 800 students, you're deputizing your four hall directors or your area directors. Uh, how are you training them to hear cases as well? So the first year, and this is where I really kind of struggled as I got to know them, um, I do think at a small college you do have to work with each individual's strengths and weaknesses because you have very close relationships with those people. Typically, what I have kind of settled into a good routine is that there's typically one resident or resident director who hears kind of that mid-level and sometimes suspension-level cases. Uh, I can rely on them to kind of take the lead if if we have to do an interim suspension. I can rely on them to do a full suspension level case if I need to, given my own kind of work at the time. And then typically the other three kind of manage those mid to low level. And what they've set up is that one resident director who has kind of the most experience and sometimes interest in conduct, I like to hopefully those come together, help kind of lead a little group with them where they once a week kind of meet and talk about sanctions and charges and whatnot. And so it helps me kind of take a more higher level approach in that, you know, that resident director can kind of be that point person for them. But then I do a lot of training in the summer. Um, I do a lot of uh, regular monthly trainings. Um, and I do try to make sure that I can get together and eat with each RD in their building at least once a semester, just because I think you can have more just transparent conversations. So you can kind of hear the things that frustrate them, the things that they're not excited about, you can kind of see what's happening in their building just on a day-to-day -day perspective too. So it's easier to know how to assign cases. You know what their day-to-day -day life looks like. So much like um, you know, many other folks in our profession, it sounds like you have functional supervision over those resident directors. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely have functional supervision more so with the one uh, RD who has interest um, in conduct. She has a higher caseload and, and obviously takes some of those more uh, severe cases. So that's been a great opportunity. That's one of my tips for everybody in a one-stop shop is, you know, find those people in residence life that are really interested in conduct um, or are good at it and really help them kind of see the benefits of developing these skills and take them under your wing and, 
and have them get the experience. Uh, it's been a great opportunity for me to have some significant functional supervision with this person, but it's also been great for me um, when everything does come together to be able to rely on somebody and trust that, that their work is going to be trustworthy. And how do you go about kind of working with their full-time supervisor to make sure that you are getting what you need from the conduct side of their world, but they're also getting what they need from their full-time side of their, their house? Lots of bribes. Um, <laughs> no, no, but uh, I, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned at Dean is, is you have to befriend residence life if you're on a residential campus. And I know that's true everywhere. I mean, that's true with UConn. That was true with Christopher Newport. But because I'm a one-stop shop here, there is no possible way I can do what I do without residence life. Uh, the assistant dean of residence life and I are close colleagues, and she steps in with Title IX appeals and investigations if if I uh, if I need that. Um, the residence life staff, I was on maternity leave in the fall. They completely stepped in and managed conduct while I was out. So I think it's it's developing really close connections with that staff. I eat lots of meals with the assistant director or the associate director, I'm sorry, and the assistant dean of residence life. Uh, I've babysat their children. They've babysat mine. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit easier because we live, we live on, but I think it's developing a really close relationship together. Then you can have some pretty honest conversations about that functional supervision to make sure that balance is there. So I know when residence life is really busy and they know when I get slammed with stuff. Now, one of the more interesting things about your institution is that you offer both two-year and four-year degrees, the associates and the bachelors. So how has that impacted your caseload? So a lot of people are pretty uh, amazed to learn that we have about 800 cases a year with uh, 1,200 students. Uh, So that gives you a clue a little bit of the unique kind of caseload that that associate degrees and bachelor's degrees uh, serving institution has. That's a pretty high proportion. It's a very high proportion. Now, if you look at recidivism um, and you kind of break that down a little bit, it ends up being anywhere between 250 to to 350 individuals. Um, So I I think the challenge, too, is is our population is one in which um, we have an incredibly diverse population for the 1,200 students that we have. We have a really uh, competitive dance program. So we have four-year students that are dancing all the time and, and are extremely uh, competitive in that field. Um, we have a significant group of students with learning challenges. The majority of our students are first generation, um, and we have a lot of students from low SES backgrounds. Not to mention you have the, the honor students and, and the uh, really overly involved students. And so I think that that tends to kind of create a lot of the the caseload that we have is just them learning to live together since we're 90% residential, as well as just kind of learning college and what that looks like. And then when you have 50% of your population freshmen, what do we see in the conduct process is mostly freshmen. Uh, you tend to have a higher caseload. Do you tend to see a difference between the needs and types of violations of the students seeking two-year degrees versus four-year degrees? For sure, and we talk about this a lot. Uh, marijuana is is significantly higher with our associate's degree students. And on top of that, we see a, a correlation with those who are not academically successful either. So marijuana is, is a big area in which I try to be very proactive because as I've talked to our assistant VP, I have a group of students in the conduct process who are not 
completing their degree um, and they're not getting a 2.0, but they're also getting two or three marijuana incidents. And so there's a significant correlation and opportunity for retention. So I do tend to see uh, a lot more students involved in the associate's degree program involved in the conduct process, but also a lot of substances, specifically marijuana. So given, you know, your small shop being one person, how do you find time to do the assessment pieces and also the outreach pieces to your community on top of managing the caseload and the investigations? That has been the, the hardest thing for me to kind of figure out. I will I will be honest, the benefit of being on a small campus is that we typically don't have as much incidents happen in the summer or during spring break. We do have students here, but they're here for very specific needs and it's all encompassing. So they're typically not getting involved in the typical conduct issues that you might see at a bigger institution, at least from my perspective. So it is really using those times to your biggest benefit and not letting it any of it go. It's also working with your colleagues to help you do some of those reports. Um, I work directly with our director of investigations and Cleary, and we sit down four times a year to go over Cleary statistics so that that way we're not trying to do that all in the summer. So we're checking up as the semester goes along. The assistant dean of students and I work together. um, She's in overseas residence life to make sure that um, our statistics are, are representative of both of our areas. So in some ways, those people kind of hold me accountable to stay on track. But two, it's it's definitely about using when you do have downtime, you jump right to it. So small bites is kind of the, the mantra, it sounds like? Yeah, and, and y- you have to be someone that can do that. So you have 20 minutes. You're going to, you know, make sure that you can put out at least two data points for for your end of year report in that time, if not more with graphs and everything like that. Um, Last summer when I did our climate survey results, that ended up being a 45-page document in total, you know, but I think it took me probably two or three months to do, I would say two, because it was just every day it was a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And what does assessment look like uh, in a shop like yours? Assessment in a shop like mine is is a lot helped by students. So I had a student intern uh, who that was a big project for him uh, this most recent semester. I also have a survey monkey that goes out at the at, with every hearing notice and then hearing decision letter. So that's all done electronically. Um, the student helped when students came in to kind of get those the one by one feedback, um, and then I use our conduct software to to review our our um, numbers and everything like that. So together, you kind of get the student feedback with the survey monkey and with the student intern. And then uh, you also get the data from our our conduct software. The other thing that, that I do with Residence Life is I'm working to try to do more focus groups, especially with our resident directors, especially as I look at redoing our handbook this summer to make sure that some of the things that I'm doing Um, are also easily understood by students um, and that I'm trying to assess them in different ways than just electronic. Excellent. Now, earlier you mentioned one of your top tips. Um, What are your kind of general top tips for folks that are transitioning into small shops or who are operating their own one-person shop? It sounds counterintuitive, but do as much as you can that's not conduct. You know, I taught a Psych 100 class, a first-year seminar class um, with uh, our female athletes. Um, I also volunteer for um, different events on campus. I was I got a pie in the face for our spring fling um, events, so students could could pie me, um, which obviously I'm a pretty uh, a p- 
popular staff member to pie, very <laughs> given <brave> my role. <laughs> right. You know, I, I tend to walk my dog around campus. I bring my, my son to events, both to, you know, dancing events, to athletic events, to even just intramural stuff. That, to me, has been really helpful in developing some genuine relationships with staff outside of, of student life. And those are the people that you need when something happens. Um, and I do think that's true at a big university, but I think at a small university, it's about being visibly present, too. It's not just being present over the phone or open door office. It's about being seen and being known on a personal level, you know, on an everyday basis. Now, a lot of what we hear from one person's shops is the question of how do I eventually expand my staff? But we also know that that is not budgetarily available at a lot of institutions. So what recommendations would you give to folks in terms of uh, capitalizing on the resources that are available to them? Yeah, that's a that's a great challenge. And I myself uh, am in the midst of it. I, I think it's first... Um, you know, part of getting involved outside of your area is helping people see what you do and people see what your needs are. Um, I joke that, too, going on maternity leave helped a lot because when I left, people were like, oh, okay. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, I think it's working with residence life and working with the residential staff as much as you can, and especially gaining that one person that you can really rely on to have that more in-depth functional supervision. I, I think the other thing is making sure you're backing everything up with numbers. Um, we've seen a steady increase in cases over the last three years, and, and so much so it's it's doubled um, since three years ago. Um, so that alone has been extremely helpful um, in demonstrating kind of the time and energy we're taking um, with our hearings. Same thing with Title IX data. The reason I kind of adopted a lot of the compliance pieces is obviously we, we know how to do that in conduct. But I think the other piece, too, is, is I can show numbers of how much, how many investigations are we doing, how much time is, is taking uh, to complete these effectively. And then I think, too, it's not being afraid to have people help you with conduct because the minute they help you, they see the complexity. I think sometimes in conduct, um, and especially at other institutions I've worked, you want to, you, the privacy piece is important, obviously. Uh, but at a small college and when you're a one-stop shop, that privacy definition has shifted a little bit. Um, certainly, they're not going to know every detail of every student, but they should know, and, and it's good professional as, professionally for them to know some of those skills in conduct. It's okay to have a lot of different hearing officers. It's okay to have a couple different Title IX staff members um, to lighten the load for you. Now, you just have to figure out the right system to make sure that you can oversee it all and, and that it's all happening appropriately. But, I mean, it's it's kind of the opposite of, of you know, use help where you can grab it and, and make sure you're, you say yes to every piece of help that you're given. Um, even if it seems like it's not going to be useful, you say yes uh, because you never know um, what can happen. I To give an example, I had two OI interns uh, review Cleary numbers with me in the summer. And, yes, I still, you know, reviewed what they did. But that was extremely helpful for me to know that I had a second three set of eyes in total, look over everything. Um, and certainly I had to teach them, you know, and certainly it took extra time. Um, and certainly it was a lot of, you know, extra, you know, effort on my part, but it was extremely helpful for me in the end game, just to know that, um, you know, other people were involved in, in those numbers. 
Great. Well, I think that's amazing advice for the folks that are listening that are also kind of navigating their ways through their own one-person shops. Shifting gears a little bit, and without violating FERPA, can you talk to us a little bit about maybe your most memorable case where you felt like you had a true impact with a student? Yes. Um, so I, I think the most memorable cases and I think for a lot of us will say this, um, who work with Title IX, ends up being Title IX for a variety of reasons. But this unique kind of case started out as I was working with a student who was reporting an incident, and then it ended up being that she was alleged of a violation too. I worked with this student all semester because between the two Title IX investigations, obviously because it's a small college, there's not um, many Title IX investigators. And in some way, we're all part of the process, whether I'm an appeal officer. So it definitely becomes a little bit challenging to make sure um, that they're getting you know, a separate person if it's available. I think the most memorable piece to it, though, is despite the fact that it was very challenging, the student has learning challenges. And so for me, it was learning how to communicate effectively with her to make sure that I felt like she understood the process, her rights, and could explain her perspective effectively. Um, But we developed a, a, a very fair and a very respectful relationship. And it started not the greatest, uh, but it ended with an I'll take this as a grain of salt, but it's something, right? With her saying, you know, you did uh, the most fair job that I I could see you do. And I think that's the best compliment that you can get from a student. They're never necessarily going to agree with you, although I have had a student hug me and thank them for their suspensions at two institutions now, which is, you know, always a unique conversation. Um, But I think just being told that you were fair and that you were respectful and, and that, you know, they can see you as a human being. I think that is kind of where you feel like you can have the most impact for a student. And I say that because life's not fair. (laughs) Life's not easy. They're not going to be able, it's just more realistic for them to see the human side of you than necessarily be happy and always accepting of the outcome. Um, They're going to leave your office and take jobs and hopefully be able to then take feedback from supervisors be able to understand the perspective of um, vice presidents above them um, and have that kind of humility to understand, you know, it's not about people picking my side. It's about being respected. It's about being fair. It's about doing the best job that you can do. I think one of the hardest parts of our jobs is that we're teaching soft skills often, uh, like you're speaking about in terms of personal humility or even just processing higher level information, things that, you know, they're not taught in high school um, or maybe have never had to really thoroughly think through. So I think your your warm fuzzy story is, is a really great example of that. And the wins in our profession are often, I felt like I was treated fairly. Yeah, and you got to write down the wins. That's another tip of mine. I think when you have a small, when a, you're a one-person shop, a lot of people think of, well, you don't have people to help when, you know, things are all coming at you. I think the other piece is you don't have a lot of people to help to celebrate. So you got to find ways to celebrate. Um, my colleagues know I have a list of of wins, and some of them are just goofy and silly and funny. And some of them are, you know, as simple as a student came in and thanked me for suspending them, you know, and I I have a list on my phone and it grows every year. And, um, and I have a jar from my old office that my colleagues gave from CNU. And I, I really do believe in that. I think when 
there's a really crappy weeks, <laughs> you got to rely on some of those success pieces, but they're hard to kind of remember if you're in that, you know, difficult place. So I think any way that you can record those wins in whatever language it is, do it. So speaking of the wins, uh, sometimes we also look at some of our cases and just think, wow, that was really strange or that was maybe a little bit absurd. And uh, for example, we have a, a case that's on YouTube where a student brings in a Texas longhorn cow into a residence hall. Uh, there was a, an alligator found in a residence hall bed very recently in Florida. Do you have any cases that kind of are reminiscent of those things that just make you go, huh, that was weird? Um, yeah, for sure. At uh, a lot of different institutions. Um, I think my favorite moment of being on maternity leave was probably still receiving, uh, the notifications via email of different incidents. Um, cause I was up in the middle of the night with my newborn, um, and just kind of reading <laughs> what was happening when I was out. Um, one of those, a tidbit, uh, you know, we had to have a conversation about biting, other people. Um, it was one week where we had a biting. We had, um, like, like almost like you were talking like a kindergartner repeatedly. Like it was a lot of these, like you need to share. It was a roommate issue where it was related to sharing. Uh, it was related to biting. Um, and it wasn't just one instant, one particular example that was like, huh? It was just, I felt like I was working at a kindergarten of just, we can't do those things. We have to share. We have to not bite each other. You know, you're going to have to sit in time out for a little bit kind of conversations, you know, and then I, I uh, I'll never forget the, the night that um, I actually wasn't even on call, but um, at the building flooded because a student decided, and this happens at a lot of institutions, but a student decided to, to hang their uh, jacket um, on a fire a fire uh, ex extinguisher and so or a fire um oh my goodness what's the word the <laughs> like a smoke detector the, no not the smoke detector the um or the actual the, alarm from the ceiling. oh the uh, <sighs> sprinkler heads thank you yes <laughs> sure. the sprinkler head so the entire building flooded so i turned into a residence life staff member that night this is what i talk about volunteering when you're needed and then doing room searches and just finding everything because you were looking for flooding but you found a lot of other stuff that probably was the most entertaining time of of my career so far at Dean, just finding what you find on a flood when people aren't expecting you to, to be there. <laughs> I bet you there were some interesting things. Yeah, there was, for sure. I'm pretty <laughs> sure the amount of uh, bongs that, that we found and the creativity behind them were pretty impressive, I'll say that. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing those stories. Uh, Alyssa, if folks want to ask any follow-up questions for you, where can they get a hold of you? They can absolutely get a hold of me um, via email, so ready at dean.edu. Uh, I'm on Twitter um, as well as you can certainly call my office. I think, you know, I, I have a direct line, and I'm always willing to, to kind of talk to anybody who needs it, um, even if you just kind of need to, to vent. I'm really thankful some, for some colleagues that, that I have at small shops where sometimes you just call them to to vent and say, you know, this is happening. I know it's not like this big, crazy case, but it's just a lot or it's just ridiculous or it's just frustrating. And, and so happily reach out. Excellent. Thanks so much, Alyssa. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Good luck, everyone. Now we're going to transition the conversation and chat with Janelle Briscoe. Janelle is also at a one person shop and she's also at a religiously affiliated institution. 
Welcome to the podcast, Janelle Briscoe. Janelle comes to us as the Director of Community Accountability at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. So welcome, Janelle. Thank you. Janelle, can you tell us a little bit about your institution? Yes. Uh, Belmont is a small, private Christian institution. We house about a little under, well, actually, probably a little better to be probably close to uh, a little over 7,000 students for undergrad and graduate students. We are in Nashville, and so we have some very music-oriented, passionate students here. So a lot of them come because they want to be the next big thing, but our nursing program is really strong, and so is our uh, business program. But we are definitely known for to be a music school. Excellent. And Janelle, I was uh, really looking forward to talking to you because you are a one-person shop, uh, but not only a one-person shop, a faith-based one-person shop. Yes. <laughs> what is that like? What is your day-to-day world? Well, um, a lot of preparation. Um, and, and obviously in our world, is very difficult because our role definitely depends upon students' decisions and whether or not they want to make a bad choice. Um, So a lot of times my position is very reactive. Um, I know when we go to the conferences, we get a lot of good ideas about how to be proactive and preventative measures. Um, But sometimes for a one-person shop, it's very hard for me to be as proactive as I would like to be um, because 90% of my position is reacting and adjudicating cases and things like that that uh, show up on my desk. Thankfully, I do partner with Residence Life. They do handle the smaller end cases, um, you know, just little things. I'm sure they won't consider those things to be little, but um, the major ones come to me. So I get all drug cases, all high-risk drinking uh, incidents, so basically a lot that has to do with transport to the hospital, things like that. Um, and then I uh, semi-partner with faculty in regards to our academic integrity procedures. If they choose to not adjudicate the matter themselves, they can pass it on to my office as well. And then I deal with off-campus incidents that may occur that we may be made aware of either by Metro Police or any other surrounding personnel that knows that they're a Belmont student and kind of shares that information with us. So a lot of my role is checking emails and adjudicating matters and following up with residents' life to make sure that their caseload is um, manageable and that they have all the support that they need as well. Um, But a lot of my stuff is administrative, making sure that we are in compliance in regards to how we're adjudicating matters, handling matters, meeting with each student to make sure that they do have their individual one-on-one time and that we're not treating them like an assembly line, uh, which sometimes as an office of one, we feel like we're constantly doing that anyway because we don't have the time and sometimes not even the resources to give that student their true one-on-one development time that um, possibly others that have a larger staff may be able to do. So how do you balance that? How do you personally strike a a balance between the students' needs as well as the administrative needs and kind of being pulled in multiple directions by various stakeholders on campus? That's a good question. Um, Well, since we're a Christian institution, I definitely, the power of prayer. (laughs) Um, 
basically, you know, I try to map out as much as I can if I know that there are certain times of the school year where we're going to have a massive amount of incidents. I kind of already try to prep my calendar to be open for those sorts of things. Higher up stakeholders, senior leaders, they kind of know that as well. So we're all just kind of geared down to the ground and kind of prepping ourselves to um, sometimes it's nice when we don't get as hit as we thought we would be, you know, for things like Halloween or uh, the week before spring break or any breaks, to be honest, that's usually when uh, students just, you know, either get cabin fever or they just think they can't get in trouble because the break's coming up. And so they just decide to test the limits there. But basically balancing it all is really depends on a case by case basis. There are some who you know, I will take that time out to, you know, balance that and have a conversation with them that, you know, hopefully will make them not a repeat offender that I would have to see later on. But there are some that some students are very transparent and open about their situation, their the incident, their behavior, things like that. Um, the ones that I usually have to take my time with are the ones that see nothing wrong or would argue policy or procedure or even parents that would come in um, and argue policy and procedure as well. And it really is kind of hard to manage, but thankfully I'm a very administratively strong. Um, but if you are not that type of individual, it can pile up on you. It can be a lot, especially being in an office of one. Janelle, how did you come to Belmont? What's your journey into the profession? Well, I started um, as an RA, so kind of went the traditional route, if there is such a thing. Um, so I was an RA for a little bit and then just kept progressing on to be either being a graduate hall director or a um, full-time staff person. Uh, so I was in residence life for a good bit, um, but I realized that I did my best work when it came to conduct. I like prepping students for the future and that it's not always sunshine and rainbows and that, yes, we value your opinion, but you will run into folks who do not. Um, and that there are consequences for your choices and that not everyone's going to view um, you as, oh, they're just kids and things like that. Um, you know, I feel like we are the dividing line. True enough, the university or colleges is a safe bubble to where if they are going to make mistakes, Hopefully it won't, depending on what it is, hopefully it won't cause too much damage before they actually make those similar choices in the future where it could have some damaging results either in the you know court systems and et cetera. So I figured that since that allowed me to meet with students on a deeper level, because with residence life, you get a lot of experiences. Like you get to program, you get to do fun things, but you also get to do administrative things and then also do conduct. And a lot of my residence life buddies, the one piece that they hated was conduct, but I loved conduct. Um, and I think they always had a misconception about how conduct works. It's not always an angry student that flips tables and just causes, you know, a ruckus. Um, a lot of times they are terrified when they're sitting in my office or they're already crying and all I said was hello and how's your day going. Um, a lot of the students that I've interacted with, not just at Belmont, but even prior institutions before that, um, a lot of students don't typically get in trouble that much or it is their first time and 
you know, they made a mistake and, you know, we all do. And it's about learning from that and not repeating it is where true, true growth comes from. And so I like to meet with students when they, um, you know, when they're not at their best, when they do have to answer to something that was outside of their character and, you know, they sometimes come in very vulnerable. And I think sometimes that's the greatest opportunity to help promote change. And so I decided to let go of residence life and just focus mainly on one aspect. And even then in that one aspect, there's so many other factors that make up uh, student conduct that I didn't realize until I actually got in it. It's still to this moment, one of my favorite things to do in higher education. Absolutely. I think uh, what you mentioned in terms of the student who comes in who is preemptively panicking about their meeting, it's always a good reminder to me about the differential and power dynamic that's happening inside of a conduct meeting. Mm-hmm. And kind of how those things um, really play a role in how we have to interact with our students to make them uh, feel safe and comfortable in a place where development can actually occur, uh, which I think is the majority of our cases. Absolutely. I I laugh every time a lot of them leave and they're like, oh, you were much nicer than I thought. And I'm like, what were you thinking I was going to do to you? Like, So, um, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you're scary, not you as a person, but just what you can do. And so I think that that student's response was so honest and it did give me a nice open view about how students perceive me before I even open my mouth. And so um, sometimes I have to take that into consideration about you know, approach uh, in regards to handling our policies and stuff. But even uh, my first interaction with them usually is orientation. And then the Mm -hmm. secondary is welcome week, just to remind them that, you know, I am human and that, you know, there have been, you know, hearings and things like that where me and the student have laughed about their behavior. And, you know, because sometimes you can laugh about things and, you know, open up, you know, an opportunity for great conversation and things that they can learn from. So uh, it's not always just about, you know, be being the hammer of justice, but, you know, sometimes, yes, I have to be that. But the other times it's just being somebody of authority that's not their parents or that somebody that doesn't have control over their grades or their progression, you know, to being successful, but something, somebody that will hold them accountable if need be, but, just somebody just to hear their side from a different viewpoint and hopefully challenge their way of thinking for the better. I think that's uh, a really consistent approach, a really great approach. And have you, can you think of an example of uh, when you had a really great interaction with a student or a parent in the process? Yes. Um, I will. Okay. There are two quick mini stories. So I'll do one with the parents. So we, have a very strict drug policy here uh, at Belmont and we can choose to suspend a student on a first-time basis for a violation of our drug policy. Um, we try to be as proactive about that uh, in letting our students and families know uh, because we do recognize that it can have a huge impact on the student if you know, if found responsible for it. So we definitely try to use as many proactive avenues as we can to, you know, let students know, like, this is not a scare tactic. Like we we're serious. Um, uh, We are a substance free community and we strive to do that. And we will take any means necessary to uh, promote that type of environment for our institution. So a lot of times you'll have some students who are like, yeah, right, you know, they won't catch me or things like that. And then you'll have some parents 
who love it because they're like, yes, I don't have to worry about my son or daughter, you know, getting caught up in an uncomfortable situation. You know, they can focus on their studies, things like that. And then you'll have some parents who, you know, disagree, thinks it's very, you know, strict and things of that nature. But it really just depends on the on the parent. But with this particular story in general, the student obviously made a bad choice, you know, found that suspension was pretty much on the table for him, had parents come down. Now, sometimes when we have parents come down and set up meetings with you, you just never really know how it's going to go. They can be Mm -hmm. very, (laughs) right, so they can be very aggressive, very emotional, things like that. And in the back of your mind as as a conduct officer, you just have to remember that it's not personal, it's not towards you, but, you know, their entire life they have protected their student and they don't know how to do anything else. And so when there's something that is negatively impacting their their student, they're going to try to do or say anything they can to kind of help fix it. So I definitely need to constantly remind myself of that whenever I meet with parents. But with this particular set of parents, when they, you know, met with me and I told them what was going on, you know, they had such a passion in them of like wanting their, you know, their student to do better. Um, and that they were just basically offering their student to do anything and everything around campus, like pick up trash, do all these sorts of community service things. And like I said before, we have a very strict policy that we hold to very strongly. And so if there was any, if there was any parent that I wanted to bend the rules for, it was them. Now, unfortunately I didn't, I still held to it, but over time during their student suspension, the parents would constantly email me to update me about what their son was doing and how he had to get a job and things like that. <laughs> and, you know, how he just hates it, but they think it's great. And like the mom was hilarious. I never had a parent follow up with me over like the rest of the school year, just giving me, you know, updates about their son and, you know, how he's going to learn from this situation. And he did. He has returned and he has not had any other issues. So, it's, But I've never had a strong partnership with parents, you know, because normally if we let them go, like either they don't come back or they'll just come back after their, you know, suspension period has ended and, you know, the parents are upset and, you know, they'll let us know very vocally how upset they are. But these parents, they try to save their son. They realize that this is probably what he needed in order to, do better. And I never had a a set of parents who told me what they were doing to their child through his (laughs) suspension. (laughs) Uh, So that was a nice little partnership on the student side. Oh yeah. On the student side really quickly off campus situation, you know, she already came from a very struggling background. So this is one of the examples where I put the policy piece on hold and actually focus on the student as an individual. Mm-hmm. Pretty much disclosed that at-home life wasn't very supportive of her college pursuit and how, you know, friends and everybody else that she grew up with also did not follow the college path, but she chose to. And so they're giving her kind of a hard time and it's hard to come back home and in that environment, but then also be here and try to pursue more. And so, yes, the actions that she had done was, yes, against policy and, yes, needed to be addressed. But there's sometimes where you just have to put policy on hold and focus on the student. And I found myself diving back into my, you know, psychology days of I was a psych major. So just going back in and just really listening and pouring into her and just making sure that she had all the resources and support that she needed 
to continue on because she only has a year and a half left before she graduates. And I just didn't want these behaviors that were ridiculous um, to prevent her ability to be successful and be the first person in her family to graduate college. And so that was definitely a memorable experience as well, because sometimes when you're so used, especially as an office of one, when you are so used to just running through these cases, like you usually hear the same story, the same reasonings usually, but sometimes you'll catch that person that just makes you stop in your tracks and and being like, wait, let's focus on you for a second. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this policy. We'll talk about, you know, future choices and doing better, but I want to invest in pour into you because I don't know if anybody else will, you know? So this is also that one-on-one opportunity. And it reminded me about the whole reason why I got into conduct in the first place, which was having an opportunity like that to pour into the lives of our students that we get, you know, at least a small bit of their time and focus to help hopefully challenge and support and encourage them to be their better potential self. So, Excellent. Well, I would imagine as a, as a one-person shop, it is harder to find time for those awesome moments with students. So what are your yes. keys to success? What do you advise and recommend for other one-person shops who are struggling with balance? Oh, man. Um, I utilize your campus partners as much as you can. Again, I'd probably be even more swamped without residence life and without the that entire team of either resident directors, assistant directors chiming in and helping with some of the caseload when it, you know, gets a little crazy. And, you know, so definitely utilizing your campus partners around campus that you feel would be beneficial to the overall mission and effort of your of your office. The other piece is, you know, the things, administrative things that you know will come up regardless, try to knock those things out as early as possible to leave your schedule open for these unanticipated events. But even when you are in the midst of doing 80 bajillion conduct cases and still there's some new things that either come up from, you know, above, you know, with senior leaders or or with your own supervisor where they needed you to do something, it's okay um, to put those things on pause and focus on whatever priorities are being put in front of you. Just do what you can within the time that you have, but definitely try to prep yourself as much as possible. Try to utilize any sort of other resources or campus partners that can help alleviate, you know, some of the number of cases or, or you know, programs or things that you have to do as a one-person shop, um, if you have the ability to grab a graduate assistant or an intern or a practicum student, that'll also help as well. I've had a couple of those over the years. Uh, they definitely help with a lot of administrative tasks, which allowed me to be a little bit more visionary in regards to the conduct office and where we need to go and how we're going to get there. So definitely try to invest in the people around you. Um, have those conversations with your supervisor as well seeing if it's even in the budget for you to maybe have a graduate assistant or somebody else that had to help with, you know, those large tasks or large administrative things that you as a one person shop just really can't get to, but still needs that sort of attention. But a lot of it, you know, is going to rely on you because people are going to expect you to figure it out. And so definitely rely on other one person shops like as myself and get that type of feedback and, 
some ideas and things of that nature. I feel lucky in the fact that I am administratively strong, so I kind of knock those things out, but I know not it's not everybody's forte. <laughs> and so if it's not, you got to figure out a way to make it work to where you don't feel like you're up to your neck in case files and you're just feeling behind and just feel like you're not giving as much dedication and, and uh, attention to you know, your work, the students, your campus partners, and overall the campus community as a whole. So Janelle, uh, shifting gears a little bit, how has being at a faith-based institution changed or impacted the way that you work with students in the student conduct process? That's a good question. Well, the interesting thing about Belmont is that, yes, it's a Christian institution. Faculty and staff profess a faith, but the students do not have to. So which causes for very interesting <laughs> conversations sometimes because with some, mostly it's parents, but some people feel that if you are a Christian institution, you're just supposed to forgive and that's it. And I try to remind folks during orientation and welcome week and, you know, anytime a question may arise from either a student or a parent that, yes, we are a Christian institution. Yes, we do forgive, but we also are very much for accountability. And that's really all that it is. And if, you know, if they like to bring up scripture, which a lot of them do, uh, we have our own set that we, you know, remind them of as well in regards to, you know, what the word says about accountability and things of that nature. So with that, it can be a little tricky, especially if they do not have a path of faith at all. Um, So sometimes you have to be careful about bringing that up or, you know, being hopefully not misleading, but making them appear as if you are being judgmental and things like that to whatever type of preconceived notions they may have about believers and things like that. But even if they are on that course, of faith and things like that, you know, usually I allow the student to kind of tap into that because I'm not sure what stage they are in their walk and I don't want to assume. And then I also don't want to come down on them uh, as if I am judging them as well. I mainly try to focus on the behavior uh, because the behavior is what brought them to my office, not necessarily their character or anything like that, but this behavior can blemish a character. It can have a negative impact more than they realize. So when it's necessary, we can tap into the faith component. Um, But a lot of times I try to steer clear of that unless they bring it up because I don't want to overstep or cause uh, any other uh, type of backlash that I didn't want to happen, which will cause them to close off, which will in turn close them up to where they may not be receptive to what I'm trying to say. Um, but we definitely try to remind students and parents that, yes, we are a Christian institution. Yes, we will forgive you. We hold no ill will or any sort of negative thoughts about any student or faculty or parent that we interact with. But, yes, there is a sense of accountability. And, yes, if you violate our drug policy, we will more than likely allow um, a suspension to be on a table. But we'll do it all in love because we want you all to grow and learn and be a better potential of yourself. So that's how we try to balance that, especially having an institution where students don't technically have to be uh, of faith. Excellent. Well, Janelle, what would you want other student conduct officers to know about the joys and the pain of being a one-person shop? 
Let's see. The the joy is I feel sometimes is that I can help navigate where this goes. That I kind of can set the tone for, especially if they decide to build upon this office later on. It can definitely be a good thing to kind of leave your your footprint, you know, somewhere in this area in this world that often we don't get a lot of praise for. We're kind of the people behind the curtain that make sure the show runs smoothly and it does. And people sometimes forget that there was a reason why that happened. And it was because we set parameters and things like that to ensure safety and security of everybody involved. I guess the the not so fun part is if something goes wrong, <laughs> it, it falls on you to fix it. Um Maybe not always, especially if you have some very willing campus partners to kind of help sit down with you and try to, you know, navigate how, you know, to handle things in the future. But you are the only expert in your area. So when I go to ASCA conferences each year, I feel like the conduct world kind of stops because I'm gone. Mm. And so sometimes that is not good. Because, yes, things can happen while I'm gone and we still need to follow our process. We still need to follow our procedures. But um, a lot of people freak out when I leave because <laughs> things always tend to happen when I'm gone. So I think when you have an office of one, like, yes, it's it's just you and you kind of have a little bit of control, a little bit about how things go. But once you are gone and uh, things can easily fall apart because either people, there's not enough um you know, people involved to kind of help pick up the pieces or they're just not as familiar with your process to kind of help pick up the pieces when you are out or, heaven forbid, you're sick or anything like that, to where it pulls you away from the office because students don't care whether or not you're in the office or not. Like, if they're going to make a bad choice, it's, it's going to, you know, they're not going to wait till it's convenient for you to make that bad choice. So I would say that uh, definitely a huge downside is when you are gone especially the one-person shop, that sometimes your area will, will shut down for, you know, a week or however long you're gone, and then things will pile up, and then you'll have to come back and, like, still rush through it all, but still make sure that you're following your procedures and still making sure that you're in compliance and still making sure that you are bringing home the values and the mission uh, and the overall integrity of your process, um, which sometimes can be a little exhausting where you feel like you can never leave because you're an office of one. Right. And you'd like to take a vacation in your life at some point, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, just just a little bit, you know, so. <laughs> I always feel like the ASCA conference is one of the few in the in the profession where at any one given time, people could be walking out of sessions, not because they're disinterested in the session, but because things are hitting the fan on their campuses and they're picking up their phones and checking email and, and trying to make sure yep. the wheels are still turning at home while they're learning so. at the conference. <laughs> Oh, very much so. Especially this past year, my phone was blown up a lot. I'm like, okay, like I tell you all well in advance that I am leaving (laughs) and I try to get as much work done before I leave. And I even warn people one more time that I'm leaving and and they will still be like, well, where's this? And I can't find this. And this incident happened. What do we do? And I'm like, oh, Lord. So, (laughs) but yes, absolutely. What value have you found in being professionally involved in the association uh, in terms of kind of carving out time for ASCA, even though you're very overwhelmed at, at work? 
Uh, sorry, repeat that first part. Uh, just curious about, I know you've been heavily involved in the association over the years in various capacities. And, you know, I hear from a lot of one person shops, you know, I'd love to be involved, but I don't have time. So sure. I'm curious to know what value has come to you from choosing to be involved? Oh, man. I've always just been a part of, always just been a huge fan of going to, um, you know, professional conferences and learning from everybody and, you know, just seeing what we can bring back here, especially like, you know, for one person shops, because again, we don't have that opportunity all the time to be very visual um, or not visual visionary uh, in regards to how our offices can run because we're just too busy running around. And so thankfully, I have a supervisor who um, is very passionate about professional development. And so when you don't take him up on it, like he kind of looks at you like, what's going on? Because <laughs> um, even for himself, like it's so hard to get away. Um, but he still, you know, basically leads by example of like, you need to go out, get refreshed. I think I hear all the time that ASCA is a place of healing and it is so true. Um, it is so nice to be surrounded by people who know what you're going through and that you don't have to explain it. Like, phrases or thoughts, like everybody shares them um, because, you know, we only understand this craziness of that student conduct. But definitely as a one-person shop, I feel that it's important to actually be seen. Yeah, it's not fun going to conferences by myself. It was definitely an adjustment Mm -hmm. (laughs) of, of being an office of one and being the only representative of your institution. But I found after a while that, you know, the conference, you start to meet people. And I was a part of the Gearing Academy a couple of years ago as well. And so I met a lot of uh, great new friends and, you know, we'll find each other at the conference and we'll make connections and things like that. So it's really, you know, there for you and your institution. You just have to have that will to make it work. Um, Yes, I know that work is going to pile up. Yes, I know there's going to be some crazy cases that happen while I'm gone. But I feel like it's to the me leaving to go to the conference or go to the academy is not only an investment, you know, of myself professionally and personally, but also an investment that the institution is um, going to hopefully benefit from because we get so many great ideas and connections that we can bring back to make each of our campuses and universities better to kind of help, you know, support and provide the best living learning environment for our students whom we are responsible for. So if it's a passion piece of yours, you got to find a way to make it work for you because I've I've never gone to the conference and regretted it, even due to the amount of work that I returned back to. Sometimes that's a, it's a, it lights a fire because I remember, it reminds me of why I did this in the first place. And then I'm ready to come back to work and tackle it with a new perspective, a new energy um, that I pulled from the conference or from the academy. Well, Janelle, for folks who are tackling similar problems, if they want to reach out to you, how can they get hold of you? Yes, you can contact me via email um, at janelle.briscoe at belmont.edu. Email is always the best way to get a hold of me because I'm trying to find some work-life balance, but I realize sometimes it doesn't exist in our world. Um, So I will always get emails and I'll naturally always look at them. I may not answer immediately, but I can't help to look at them. (laughs) So um, just to make sure it's not something of a huge emergency that I need to handle. But that is definitely the best contact piece uh, to get in touch with me. I am more than happy to talk with 
people on a, if they have more specific questions about, you know, one person shopped or how do I handle a particular case or this or that, uh, I am definitely willing to speak to those individuals. Or even if you're not a one person shopper and you're just, you know, just curious about, you know, what, what it is I do every day uh, as a one person shop, I'm definitely willing to have those sorts of discussions. And Janelle, would you mind spelling your email for us too? Yes, it's J-A-N-E-L-L-E dot Briscoe, B-R-I-S-C-O-E at Belmont, B-E-L-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Thank you so much. And if you'd like You're to re- uh, if you'd like to reach the podcast, any listener who wants to reach out to us, love to hear any feedback from you. Uh, you can email us at ascapodcast at gmail.com. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ASCAPodcast. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, we welcome Alyssa LaFall. Alyssa currently serves as the ASCA Director of Diversity and Inclusion on the Board of Directors, but she will be talking about her transition from a full-time corporate attorney into the field of student conduct. I hope you come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>